Mollusca. Hello and welcome to Animalia, the podcast all about animals. And the weird and interesting things they do. I'm Farley. I'm Annie. And I'm David. Today, we're talking about the strange ways that animals defend themselves. To learn about these tactics, from the spiny to the smelly, we spoke with Ted. My name is Ted Stankwich, and I'm an associate professor at California State University, Long Beach. Ted studies how mammals defend themselves and how these defenses might have evolved. When I, I was working on naked mole rats as an undergrad, and that was my first uh, experience working with live animals and, and mammals, and, it, and I just had a natural affinity for them. Um, uh, and I, I worked with them all during my graduate career. I, as a postdoc, I worked a bit with jumping spiders, and yeah. um, which was which was fun. Uh, but uh, mammals called me back. Um, I just could not get away from them. All the all of my favorite questions were with mammals. That's what I kept thinking about. Uh, what sort of animals have you actually worked with so far? So you said naked mole rats. You began with. Uh, then you went to deer. <clears throat> what other animals have you actually worked with? So my very first experience actually was uh, as an undergraduate. I worked with sharks. Uh, um, in a, a lab at UC Irvine, but I've worked on marmots, squirrels, birds, um, you know, here and there with ra- random experiments. Um, and then once I got my job at Long Beach State, I began my, our field trials on skunks and coyotes. I had sort of been planning this field program for a long time. And skunks and coyotes were this great system where skunks are everywhere, coyotes are everywhere, skunks have Awesome defenses, great coloration. They're, everyone has this good skunk story. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's just so much to work on there. And, and the great part about it is, as a person who's interested in predator-prey behavior and mammals with animal defenses, no one works on skunks, uh, skunk behavior at least. There are people who trap them and do demography and ecology and, and that kind of thing. But very few people want to work with skunks and, and look at how they respond to predators. So it's sort of my own little world that I can I can play in without too much fear of being scooped by other people. Well, it kind of makes sense, though. Like, that's the one animal, if you trap it and actually work with it closely, you make it sprayed. Yeah. <laughs> but ironically, if you do it right, you don't get sprayed. So, really? So in five years, I've, I've only ever been sprayed once. Really? Uh, wow. And that was, was sprayed one, one time. There are people who trap them and work on them and capture them who... Um, let's say they capture them in di- different ways than I, I do that, and aren't as, as careful uh, and they get sprayed all the time. So I, I heard one guy, um, his, his te- technique was to find them walking around in the field and he takes a big net and he runs up to them with the net and put, puts the net over them and tackles them and picks them up and handles them. And, 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 and it got sprayed every time. And Wait, just that's like, not a technique. That's yeah, just yeah, that's just winging it, being a human predator, I guess. But but uh, uh, the, I I didn't want to to get sprayed by skunks every time I went out there. So yeah. so I chose to go the more the more you know careful route and and uh, do do trapping. And so when we trap, um, we're very careful. Traps are covered. We we do pre anesthesia with isoflurane, so they are sort of get sleepy. Yeah. Initially, mm-hmm. you can see their head sort of nod off, and then once they're a little bit sleepy, we can inject them with with uh, with, with ketamine, which will knock them out for a while. And so, if you do it carefully and you do it right, um, they don't want to sp- they don't want to spray you to, be- to begin with. But um, I've only ever been sprayed twice. Well, once myself, once my assistant, and both times were my mistake. Um, mm-hmm. So only if we screw up do, yeah. do you get sprayed. That's um, impressive. Yeah. yeah. Can you describe what it's like to be sprayed by a skunk? Um, it's so I've, I when I got sprayed, it was on my hand, and when my okay. sister got sprayed, it was on her arm. So I never taken a shot to the face. <laughs> I know people who have, and it's a much more unpleasant experience. Yeah. I mean, if you just get it on your hand, it just stinks. It doesn't 
burn. It doesn't hurt. Um, yeah. uh, but, um, I simply cleaned off my hand and it was, I was totally fine. Yeah. But if you get sprayed in the face, um, it's a much more unpleasant experience because it burns, it itches, it's, it's disorienting. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I've heard it's much, much worse than, than what I had. So, but I've been, when I'm trapping skunks, you know, um, trying to inject them. I've been staring at the business end of a skunk, like within, you know, 10, 10 centimeters. And it's, and, uh, it's scary, <laughs> yeah. um, but it's, uh, uh, thankfully I have not yet received, um, a hit. The one fun th thing about <laughs> anesthesia with skunks is that they fall asleep back to front and wake up front to back. Uh, so their butt is the first thing to fall asleep and the last thing to wake up. Um, <laughs> so, uh, it actually works out great because, um, you're, you're at little risk of being sprayed once you get it in there. It, it, once the drug's in there, that their their butts gonna fall asleep. Even if even if they can still scratch and and claw and, and bite, their back legs are pretty much useless at that point. Especially if you inject them in the in the thigh. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 not that hard. Are they are they mean to handle too? Like when you actually are <clears throat> when they're coming out, are they feisty little creatures or are they? It very much depends. Yeah. If they are, um, so we after that they start to wake up uh, once they get back control over their head. So we pull them out of the trap and they're asleep. I, um, I would never handle a, a, a fully awake skunk. <laughs> it wouldn't be a very smart thing. Um, uh, and we put them, but as they start to wake up, we put them back into the trap to wake up to completely because we don't want to put them back when they're groggy or they're they're um, not complete they're totally awake we want them to be able to, to defend themselves if, should anything happen because once they're out of out of our control we can't do much to with them um and so we put them back in the trap they, they they wake up and so if if you leave them in the trap for a while and they are completely awake um and full control they will and you let them out they might run out and turn around and be defensive and put their tail up and and stomp and um, but then just sort of wander away that if you don't pr pr pursue them. But if they're still a little bit hazy, we'll say, um, uh, the, the animal might come up and sniff your feet, walk over your feet or in, in between your legs, um, and, and just sort of stumble around and, and look for a burrow. Uh, so, um, we always monitor the animal after it's follow it to its, to a burrow, make sure it gets somewhere safe or off into the, the bushes before we let it, before we walk away. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm always thinking first about the welfare of the animal. Yeah. Yeah. And so what specifically are you doing with skunks right now? So we're doing a number of projects w with the skunks right now. Um, we have, uh, worked on, on, on their, their secretions in the past. So when we trap them, one of the things we can do is extract the oil out and, uh, study the chemistry of the oil. We, we mark and, and ID them as well. Take take hair samples um, individually, mark them. Then it allows us to ID them. It, when we do go back and do behavioral work at night, we sort of know who we're, we're, we're working with. Things that we've done recently is looking at how how they respond to different types of predator calls. Um, so how do skunks perceive different types of predators d differently? Do they? Um, uh, we looked at um, how they responded to owl calls versus coyote calls versus falcon versus white noise. And um, to see if they have, they're more fearful, or that they respond differently to owls versus coyotes, for instance. Uh, owls are far more dangerous for skunks than coyotes. Uh, the the vast majority of of mortality due to, to predation in skunks is from owls, great horned owls in particular. Uh, the coyotes and the other mammals know not to mess with skunks. Um, it might take one learning experience being sprayed, but. Uh, in general, they they want nothing to do with skunks. They they walk away. 
Um, there's lots and lots of videos you can find online of skunks scaring other larger carnivores away from the area, either chasing them away or ch chasing them off kills. There's a great video of a spotted skunk, a tiny little spotted skunk, chasing away a mountain lion off of its kill. <laughs> Um, twice in one night. Uh, so the larger carnivores know not to uh, harass a skunk. They are pretty much the kings out there. Um, and uh, uh, so, so we're interested in how do skunks perceive fear differently between those, those types of predators. God, why is an owl just no fear of it? It's because they, they get them before they can spray? Or yeah, so, just the, how agile an owl is and how quiet and everything? It just can... So owls are very silent flyers. They can swoop down silently and attack from above. And skunks usually have their head in the in the ground looking for for insects or eggs or whatever, uh, beetles. And uh, they can fly down and attack from above, not get sprayed, whereas mammals attack from the side. Yeah. Um, and also, owls just don't smell very well. They are fairly anosmic. <laughs> they uh, birds in general we don't think are, have very good uh, senses of smell. So I think that um, if they did get sprayed, it wouldn't matter all that much. Uh, but they're just such effective attackers that they are um, much more able to attack a skunk. Now, gr granted, they would prefer to attack a rabbit or something easier to bring down that doesn't yeah. have sharp teeth and claws. But they certainly do attack skunks. Um, and are large enough to. So there's very, very few birds of prey or owls that can kill a skunk um, but that are large enough to, but great horned owls are certainly the, the, the biggest predator out there for them. Cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's so interesting. I hadn't really thought about the fact that birds wouldn't have such a good sense of smell, yeah. and that makes so much sense. Yeah. yeah. So some birds do, do like seabirds that are looking for mm. yeah, you know, uh, food in the ocean have to have, have good smell or, or um Vultures, yeah. any sort of scavenger would, but other ones don't, though. Yeah. So we've been talking about skunks and some of their, well, the way they defend themselves is with, you know, stinky substances. But what are some of the other ways that animals can defend themselves or arm themselves that you've studied? So uh, amongst the mammals, there are lots of sprayers. So skunks are, are, are great Example of sprayers. There's lots of other carnivores who will spray noxious secretions as well. Um, uh, here in Australia, you have the striped possums, which are the other sort of stinky uh, black and white mammals that not a lot of people know about. That, that we were actually talking about this before. We were trying to think if there if there were yeah um, stinky mammals in Australia, and I couldn't think of any. Yeah, so the stri striped possums one. There are a lot in New Guinea as well as the what yeah. would be the main area, but. But um, they're black and white, striped like a skunk, not quite the same, but very bold. Um, but they don't spray. They just sort of secrete a foul odor, um, <laughs> is my understanding of it. I've never seen one or held one or been around one, but that's what I understand is they, they just sort of reek. Yep, so they're just uh, generally stinky. Yeah, it doesn't have when to be harassed. Yeah. When harassed. Oh, just like, oh, you know, right. They just always smell. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I think when harassed is when yeah. they do. That, that's yeah. my understanding of it, okay. at least. Um, but... Uh, the, uh, otherwise, uh, other animals are it can be very defensive. Black and white co coloration can can mean a variety of things. It can mm -hmm. advertise noxious defenses. It can advertise um, spines and quills. So a lot of the things like porcupines and echidnas and, and other other species that have really sharp spines or quills that can be dangerous or harmful to a predator, the spines or quills are striated black and white or dark and light, and um, or oftentimes. They are dark on the tips of the spines, but white underneath. So when they erect their spines, you get this really stark contrasting signal um, that's not visible when the animal's just walking around in the 
quills and are laying down flat. So it's one of these cool examples where you're you're camouflaged most of the time, but when you're harassed and you wreck those spines up in defense, you have this bright signal that pops up. Uh, so that, that's that's really really unique um, uh, response that they that they can have. Um, so so why black and white? Is it just the contrast? It's the contrast, yeah. yeah. So if you think about mammal prey like that, most of their predators are going to be other mammals. They're going to mm-hmm. be carnivores. And carnivorous mammals are dichromatic. They, they cannot see in full color. They see shades of brown and green. Whereas, um, so the most contrasting set of colors you can, or, you know, shades you can imagine is black and white. It, wouldn't, it doesn't matter if you're yellow and black or red and black. Black and white is more, more contrasting and going to be more evocative than anything else. Whereas birds, for instance, are, they do have color vision and they can see reds and yellows and, and blues and greens. So having bright oranges and yellows and reds with black is, is a very contrasting si- signal. So that's why a lot of insect and frog prey, for instance, uh, poison dart frogs um, are colorful and because their main predators are birds. Yeah. It depends on who your predator is, what you're going to lo- look like. To my knowledge, there's only one mammal that has that's that has warning colors like that that it's not black and white, and that's that's the streaked tenrec. Um, that's yellow and black. Uh, what, and what kind of animal is that? It's uh, so tenrecs are these. They kind of look like hedgehogs, but they aren't hedgehogs. They're they're related to other. African mammals like elephant shrews and golden moles, um, even they're even more closely related to elephants and, and manatees and hyraxes than than all, all of your other mammals. Uh, but they, um, the tenrex are a group of, of little spiny mammals that that, that um, evolved on Madagascar uh, on their own, and that's the only place that they're found. Uh, and so the streaked tenrec is actually a, a really cool um, rodent-sized uh, um, insectivore that has it's very black um, sort of less spiny hair with these bright yellow spines on the body. Um, and they, uh, they can harass and buck their head around and try to jab their spines into, into predators. But um, they are yellow and black, not, not black and white. That's kind of mean. So mammals don't have the coloration that, say, other um, animals do. <clears throat> they also don't really have the toxins or the venoms either. Right. So what's the reason platypus are the only with along with some shrew species that actually have venom? Yeah. So so the platypus has the venom in their their spurs and the shrews can secrete venom through their glands in their in their, in their mouth and inject it into prey. That venom is really to subdue prey. It's not a defensive venom. And the venom in platypus are I think it's mainly used in in uh, battles over mates. So um, it's not the same as as a snake that's trying to um, to defend itself for, for instance. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it's hard to answer the, answer those questions of why doesn't an animal have a tree? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, uh, it, or because it may just not have stumbled upon the answer yet, or it may not have a strong need for it yet. What's easier to answer is what factors influence the evolution of a trait? Why, why do these certain species have it? What are the, what sort of natural history or ecological factors do they share in their lifestyles that would favor the evolution of these traits. So that's that's the, the better way to sort of ask these questions, um, uh, mainly because there's multiple ways to solve the same problem. If you are at particular risk of being killed by a predator, one solution is to spray noxious secretions if you have the infrastructure already there. So for instance, these stinky carnivores they already had anal glands. All carnivores have anal glands that they use for communication. The stinky ones just have co-opted them for 
a strong defense. Um, so it makes sense that if, if you're not, if you don't have them already, it's going to be hard to evolve that noxious defense. Um, uh, armadillos and pangolins have stumbled upon body armor as their, their method of defense, whereas echidnas and porcupines have, and hedgehogs use spines. Um, so it just depends on what solution you stumble on first evolutionarily, and that's, what, that's what's effective. Um, I don't know if there's a particular predictor for which groups or for why certain groups have spines and other groups have armor or other groups have, have um, sprays. Yeah, and many of these things have evolved independently more than once, right? So mm -hmm. you'll have completely unrelated groups that, well, not completely, but less related groups that have evolved similar ways of defending themselves, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so spines have evolved a number of times all across the mammals. Echidnas, tenrex, hedgehogs, uh, two families of, of porcupines that evolved it independently. Mm -hmm. Spiny rats also, um, are, they're not spiny like hedgehogs, but they do have thickened spines that are definitely um, bristly and, and more solid than other hares are. Um, within the carnivores, stinky, noxious secretions have evolved a number of times because they have the infrastructure of, of those anal glands to build on. But when they do evolve, they, they, the, the noxious compounds are completely different each time. Mm. So that shows that they've evolved independently. Um, and then you have body armor evolving twice, but in two very different ways. Arm armadillos are, you know, um, bony carapace with some keratin on top. Um, uh, whereas pangolins have these keratin scales, there's no bone in there. It's all, it's all, uh, keratin scale, um, uh, almost dr dragon like, but both are hard, hard shells that if they curl up into a ball, you can't penetrate it. Um, mm -hmm. So two different ways of doing the same thing. Skies, what are we talking about here? Pangolins? Pangolin, yes. Yeah, so it's a pangolin. So it's an animal that lives in Africa. It's a mammal that's covered in these hard scales. Yeah, so they also get called scaly anteaters and that's exactly what they look like. Okay, we're not talking about penguins. Yes, no, no not, not a penguin. We're not talking about penguins. <laughs> Actually, you know, that was keratin for the, um, what do you call them? Pen the pangolin? That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, so the outer surface is all keratin. It's, it's, wow. So the, 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 the scales are highly coveted in Eastern cultures for, for, for medicinal purposes. Yeah. And, that, that, and, and so, but in reality, it's the same substance as your fingernail. It's the exact same yeah. thing. We yeah. just love fingernails. Yeah. Rhino <laughs> horns. We'll just choose everything with fingernails. Yeah. I mean, I, I bite my nails, so I get it. Yeah. But <laughs> that's yeah. really disturbing. So, yeah, you, all... if you want to eat your fingernails or use it in medicine, all the power to you. But <laughs> stay away from the pangolins. You know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's, so that's all keratin in, 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 their, in their scales. It's the same thing as an echidna spine, same thing as a porcupine quill. It's all, it's all that's the, same, crazy. the same stuff. I so, um, I mean, they have the skeleton underneath, which is yeah. normal, but, but the outer coating that, that is the protection, there's no bone in that. Whereas in an armadillo, there is there is a bony core down there. That's funny. I don't think I actually have ever seen an armadillo skeleton. I've actually never seen an armadillo, except for in a zoo, <laughs> now that I think about it. But I've never seen a skeleton of one, so I didn't realize it was bone. Yeah, so the outer surface, the, over the bony layer is um, sort of a, a layer of darkened ker keratin, but it doesn't provide the, the, the protection of that yeah. bony uh, osteoderm. It's called osteoderms underneath. It's this sort of a... Um, puzzle of, of these osteoderms that, that um, all fit together to, to produce the, this hardened structure. Mm. Cool. Yeah. One thing that Ted is interested in is the cost of defences. As in, if animals are investing energy into these fancy ways of protecting themselves, then are they sacrificing something else? 
Yeah. So if you build it, it takes a lot of energy to, to build these these heavy structures and also to carry around and maintain it. Um, grow, growing new spines every year, growing new scales all the time. Uh, it takes a lot of energy to build and maintain um, and transport. The, there are costs both energetically, so you have to spend a lot of, of energy to, to build them, but also um, it slows you down. You know, to a lot of mm-hmm. these animals are really heavy, so it, there are costs to mobility, the ability to climb, walk run and walk quickly. Uh, and so they have to pay for that s- somehow. And, and one of the things that we found is that um, species that have, e- have evolved these really powerful defenses um, have smaller brain sizes than other species do. So um, every time on the, 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 in the evolutionary history of mammals, when there's been a big leap and you see the evolution of these powerful defenses, you see a equally strong drop in um, the what's called the encephalization quotient of the animal. So that's how how big is their brain relative to their body size, uh, essentially asking. Um, so bigger animals have bigger brains just because they, they scale that way. But we can, we can look at what the predicted brain size is for a mammal of any given size and ask, well, how big is your brain relative to, to that predicted level? If your brain is larger than pre- predicted, you have, you're very highly encephalized. Whereas if you're lower than the prediction, then you are not encephalized and you're thought to be pretty dumb. Yeah. So, um, so armadillo is not doing well. Armadillo is not doing well. <laughs> Penguin's not doing well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so an, e, an EQ of one is sort of the, the prediction. Um, and Wait, of those two animals, a one is the prediction. No, no. So, oh, so, for, <laughs> for, so for, 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 for the way EQ works, encephalization question, an EQ of one me- means you have the brain size that is predicted based on your body mass. Yep. So if you're below one, that means you're quote unquote dumber than, than pre- pre- predicted. And if you have it above one, then, then you're smarter than you're predicted. Humans are up in the seven range, biggest of any mammal. Um, most of your, um, Defended mammals are b- below one. Uh, skunks are above one. They're about, I want to say, 1.3, um, only because carnivores in general are mm. above one. Uh, but among the carnivores, they are lower than other carnivores because they have this um, spray defenses. Uh, but most of your other spiny armored animals are below one, though, other than porcupines. So even having just that kind of spray defense brings them down a notch. As far as intelligence goes, yeah, so you see that kind of across the board. If you have a defense of some sort, usually you're going to take a hit in the brain department. That's what we found. I mean, in skunks, it was less a less um, pronounced decline, um, and even within the skunks, there's a fair amount of variation. So um, most of your skunks, so that the the family is called um, Mephididae. It's it's the family that includes skunks and stink badgers. They great uh, great name for them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> stink, badger. stink badgers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, there's two species of stink badger in Southeast Asia. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, so they all great sprayers and, and have black and white coloration. Uh, and all of them, except for the spotted skunks, have fairly low EQs for, for the group. Um, however, but they're all sort of larger, lumbering, burrowing, uh, tubby sort of um, carnivores. Whereas your spotted skunks are more weasel-like, they're a little bit more gracile and will, they're really good climbers. Um, and we think that having an arboreal lifestyle, li- living up in trees, uh, requires greater cognitive ability and to navigate that three-dimensional world. So um, interestingly, with the spotted skunks have higher EQs than the other other, group, other skunks in the group. Um, the same with porcupines, actually. So the porcupines are this are a weird group where they're 
they're the one group of all the mammals where their EQ increased when really? when quills evolved, um, ever so slightly, but it but yeah. there was an increase. That, so 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 they bucked that trend. But within the porcupines, there's a lot of variation in in how arboreal you are. Do you live in trees or not? How big you are? So that there's smaller species that live up in trees. There's bigger lumbering species that live on the ground and are very exposed to predators. In that gradation, the smaller species that live in trees have higher EQs. The bigger species that lumber on the ground are um, have lower EQs, as you would expect. Mm-hmm. So even within that group, there's it goes as expected. But how you, how they got the quills with with uh, um, higher EQs is not really known. So we're exploring that r- r- right now. We have we have we're, we're gathering data on on uh, porcupine quill evolution as well. That's really cool. And how are you determining these EQs? So are you doing actual cognitive tests on them, or what are you actually doing? Yeah, so there's measuring cognition and intelligence. There's, there's, vari- there's various ways to do it. Um, the primatologists have it down. They, they can do the advanced cognitive tests and behavioral tests. Uh, they have a lot of great um, tests of neuronal de- density in different parts of the brain. It's very elaborate um, or uh, uh, more refined measures of cognition in the primates. But when you want to work on a huge swath of mammals and do a big comparative study, you, you're limited to, to what is available. And the most the, the most basic way it's been measured is with relative brain size, just pure brain mass. Mm-hmm. So the the old old tried and true method of do, doing it is you take the skull, you pour in some sort of bead or buckshot or uh, um, grain of, of, of something, and you pour it into, into the, the cranium, into the hollow cavity of the skull until it fills up, and then you pour that out into a graduated cylinder and see what the volume that you poured in there was. That gives you the, the cranial volume. Once you have the cranial volume, you can do a simple calculation to, to turn that into a mass, and you, can, and you, have, you have the brain mass. Um, that's just the crudest way to measure it. However, uh, a, a much better way would be to do some sort of endocast scan or um, be able to try to, to measure different parts of the brain on, a, on an actual carcass. Um, but that takes a whole different level of, of measurement ability um, and resources, whereas it's really easy to, to go to a museum and just measure a bunch of skulls really quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's either fast and dirty or really refined. It depends on what your question is and, yeah. and what your goal is. It's very easy for us to look at an animal and make assumptions about why it looks the way it does or why it has the features that it has. Are there good examples of where we've gotten that just totally wrong? The best one I like to talk about is the giraffe neck. Why do giraffes have long necks? And, you know, I grew up in school. Giraffes have long necks to reach high up in trees to, to reach the tallest leaves. And those that could reach tall leaves got to eat more, and therefore there was natural selection that favored long necks. Um, it wasn't until more recently that people went to go actually test that hypothesis, and they discovered that when giraffes feed, that they, they're actually usually feeding at shoulder height. They're not reaching high up in trees most of the time to, to reach those tall leaves. And if they're not reaching up and high in the trees for, for, for leaves, why do they have the long neck? But when you actually watch giraffes for a long period of time, you realize that what giraffes are using their neck for is to fight each other. Um, so males have really thick muscular necks and when they when they they will stand side to side and whip their necks around like like clubs and beat each other up with their heads and their necks Um, and uh, so you can see some great videos online of male giraffes fighting Um, 
So essentially, bigger males have longer necks, more powerful clubs for, for battling. And some better evidence of this is that females are more willing to let males test to see if they're in heat with it when they have longer necks. So their females are more receptive to longer necked males and thicker necked males. And uh, males with bigger, longer necks are hold more dominant positions in the, in the, the hierarchy. Also, uh, there is sexual dimorphism. So di differences between males and females in size in giraffes. Males are much larger than, than females. Females still obviously have, have long necks, but they aren't nearly as thick and muscular as, as the males are, um, which suggests that, that selection is favoring this insane trait in the males and, and the females just sort of coming along for, for the ride. Um, it's, just a I, 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 think, yeah. I think nature is saying we can't, build, we can't build a long male neck without building a long female neck at the same time. It'll be like a horse with a giraffe, pretty much. Yes. It's funny. Yeah. yeah. Kind of weird. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like feathers or, or some other you know, colorful signal that might more easily be detached between males and females. Yeah. Um, uh, a neck is something that <laughs> it's kind of important. Um, so so that's, that's what we are probably seeing is males have long necks for... Uh, to, to, to better fight with and it came along for, for the ride and the females. There may be some also some benefit for the females as well. Obviously, reaching high up in trees is another benefit it has, but most likely giraffe necks evol evolved for, um, to, to help males fight. So that would be one of these traits. I'd be yeah. curious too, is that if there's any negatives to it as well? Are there any negatives that go along with having a huge neck and kind of a lopsided body? I mean, it's a huge trait to have to carry around with yeah. you. I mean, it's it such a burden for females if they get really, maybe they get, they get to actually get to benefit from being the taller leaves or they can see predators from yeah. a little further away, but like they may just be taking a huge hit. <laughs> One of the, my favorite examples of, of poor design, quote unquote design occurs in giraffe necks where they the laryngeal nerve um, goes from the, the voice box to the brainstem and in, in vertebrates, in general, it goes has to go down the neck, wraps around the aorta of the heart, and back up to the to, to the brain because of it. it's an evolutionary um, vestige of, of when we were fish. Quick explainer: the laryngeal nerve controls the larynx. The larynx is where we hold our vocal cords and helps us control our breathing. And the larynx, also for reference, is at the top of the neck. Um, when we were fish and that we didn't have a neck, that that nerve was a direct path from mm. between the, those two those two points. But as the neck evolved and it stretched out, it had to wrap around, it still it was still um, wrapped around the aorta and, and it still has to tr make that long trip. So in a giraffe, it has to travel <laughs> six feet down and six feet back up, even though those two structures are really only 10 centimeters apart. It's, it's, a, it's really a, a, it's an amazing stru structure to, to look at. Um, and so inefficient. Yeah, it's, so a, inefficient. it's a really, really poor evolutionary uh, design, you know. Um, so there are, a lot, there are a lot of great traits like that, 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 you know, if you're looking for ways in which nature makes things perfect, they, they, they really don't. They, they really screw things up in a lot of ways. Um, so giraffe necks are just one of the, one of the ways. In case you're curious too, this is what a giraffe can sound like. And another animal you worked with, we read about you also worked with zebras or zebras. Yes. The same? Yes. <laughs> I say zebras. Yeah. And that's another thing too. I remember like as a kid, I just, you know, taught the whole thing. Like, oh, they, so they blend in together when they're all yes. together in a big herd. They blend it in depends together. Depends who you talk to though. Some people are taught different things. Wait, were you guys taught? 
I I don't remember what we were taught, but I always assumed it was like the same as what you're told for tigers and other stuff. It's about breaking the outline yeah. or something yeah. like that. So, so yeah, there, but there's lots of hypotheses for why why they have stripes. So one is to, to blend in in woodland envi- environments. One is to 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 blend in with the grass or to um, uh, um, there's a predator confusion hypothesis where there's a dazzle effect of all these stripes going back and forth and it's hard for predators to pick one out of the group because of all these dazzling stripes. Um, there's hypotheses about individual recognition. Stripes are help, help, help individuals identify each other. There's, there's a, a thermal hypothesis that they, the black and white stripes um, establish little eddies of, of warm air that, um, that help cool the animal off in these hot environments um, because of the black and white uh, differences in how, how heat reflects off of them. Oh, there's an anti-predator hypothesis that, that where it could be a warning coloration for for, for hyenas and, and lions. Um, so there's just a variety of different explanations, including the the, the, the camouflage one. Um, but uh, the most recent one, and the one that it's now pretty well accepted that we found it is an explanation, is that it helps them avoid um, biting flies, um, tabanid flies, tsetse flies, uh, things that um, can suck their blood and pass on High, high amounts of, of disease and, and, and uh, can be really, really awful. And what we found what was that, that zebras are, are living in areas that are, um, they are exposed to these flies for a lot of the year, really hot, high humidity environments um, where species of equids, so equids are horses, the horse family, there are seven species, three, three species of zebra, four species that aren't um, these zebras. Of those, the ones that live in these high fly activity areas for mo- for most of the year all have stripes, mm-hmm. and so what we think is that 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 these stripes evolved initially to help deter biting flies. And what happens is the these flies have have eyes that that um, are different than ours, and the stripes help to mask the outline of the zebra on, in the in the habitat, and it, it makes it hard for the fly to land on the on on the animal. Uh, and so if you can avoid flies landing on you, then, then you're, you're halfway there. Right. Uh, so, so there's a lot more, there's a lot of empirical research happening right now. Um, experiments showing that, that things with black and white stripes draped over them with zebra pelts or cow hides that are painted black and white have, are getting landed on less and less by biting flies. Mm -hmm. And so our study, uh, showed that it was an evolutionary study that, that, that showed that, that um, species and subspecies that, that live in just the right climate um, for, for these biting flies are the ones that, that have more bold stripes. And when you, you live in less um, intense fly, fly environments, you have fewer stripes or less pronounced stripes. God, you like stumbled into the most practical project ever. Just like if you're, if you want to avoid those insects, just yeah. your roofs, everything, yeah. just paint everything those colors. So, so that's that's a question we get all the time, actually. You know, so can I just go out there and wear my <laughs> my zebra print outfit and avoid being bitten? And um, I'm going to say probably not. Yeah. Um, I, I think that it being on fur it, it is it, it's yeah, a okay. it's a, is important. I think that probably helps to 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 confuse them, and that they probably have to be oriented in the right direction relative to both the sun and the, the horizon too. Mm. So I, I, I'm not sure if it would work as well with a typical zebra print on your shirt um, <laughs> as it would on, on the animal itself. Yeah. Um, but it, I, I mean, who knows? 
Um, I, I, I think those experiments are ongoing right now because someone must want to test that out. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Take your sure. car, just stripe your car with it. Everything. Yeah. Just stripe everything. Like yeah. I never get by, I never get bit by any insects. <laughs> yeah. I figured it out. At least where you're wearing those clothes. For, yeah. 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 For sure. So obviously you've worked with a ton of animals. Are there any animals you want to work with? So I've, I just got the opportunity to work with, with echidnas. That was a bucket list animal that I got to, <laughs> to check off. So that was, that's awesome. Um, the next one on my list would probably be the pangolins. I would love to be able to work with, with pangolins yeah. for a short period. Just be able to go out and ex- have that experience would be awesome. Um, so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll find a way at some point to, to, to get my, my hands on a, <laughs> project where I get to work on pangolins as a as a, as a defended uh, mammal biologist. I, that's that would be one of the dream species. Yeah. Um, so I'm writing a few grants to work on both armadillos and pang- pangolins and look at how their de- how their defenses hold up. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got was as a PhD student. My 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 mentor told me to to just go out and play. You know, pro- take your the approach to your careers is. An- Ask the questions that interest you and work on the animals that you want to work on. And it's one of the few careers you can have where you can have true freedom of exploration to just do whatever you want to do. Uh, some people work on the same animal their entire careers. You know, maybe it's a model organism and that's all they, they do for 30, 40 years. Um, I, I, I don't have that attention span. Um, I, I like to bounce around and ask different questions and, and um, I'd, I'd get bored if, if I did that. So, so I'm working on skunks and coyotes now. Who knows, in 10 years I might not be working on them at all, but I, I'd like to, to think that I will still be. Um, but uh, um, yeah, I, I, I wanna go out in there and work on the cool things I wanna work on, ask the questions I wanna work on. Because that, that inevitably when you do science, you answer questions and then new questions pop up. So new questions I have might not be on the same organisms that I'm working on right now. And I don't want to just ignore those. I want to go explore those too. Uh, so finding new ways to study new things is always, is always fun and, yeah. and tell, tell new stories as well. So. That's a good approach. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. makes for a happy career. Yeah. Sure. Seriously. Makes you you can go out to Australia for a few months. Yes, exactly. Yes, to do fun adventures like this. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been great. Yeah. So, Annie, what have we learned from Ted's talk? We've learned that stinky mammals tend to be black and white. Animals that have many defenses, like spines and shields, oftentimes have small brains. Giraffes probably evolved their long necks so that the males can fight each other. Research indicates that zebras, or zebras, how it's correctly pronounced, use their stripes to ward off flies. And if you're going to catch a skunk, don't do it with your bare hands. I think that's about it. Thanks so much for listening. So if you would like to support this podcast, you can do so at Patreon. Any little bit you can donate to us will help us to continue this podcast. We really appreciate your support. Thank you guys so much for listening. Until next time. Bye. Animalia Podcast is hosted by Annie Allsbrook and Farley Connolly, with occasional interjections by me, the sound engineer David Roker. Our logo is designed by Osvaldo Branklin and all original music is by Sean Pratt.